0: Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Several of our listeners asked for a brief review of the global financial crisis occurring approximately 10 years ago. These outcomes can't happen again, right? Let's join Roger now and see if we can learn from our financial history.
1: This crisis was not only the worst since the Great Depression, but was the first to reflect the relatively new connectivity of world financial markets, global banking, and the emergence of a large, rapidly growing shadow banking system. We need to better understand these connections as conditions today once again reflect many similar toxic ingredients. These ingredients are, in my opinion, recreating a new, large, rapidly unfolding, and globally contagious follow-on crisis. The latest global health scares only add to the coming economic severity. No matter your age, I'm sure you can recollect the 2008-2009 period when families were unsure cash would even be available through the ATM machines. Rapid global issues then included a crashing stock market, rapid spikes in unemployment, and house prices declining across the country by 30 and 40 percent. Many of America's largest banks, savings and loans, commercial lenders, mortgage brokers, federal government-supported home lenders, even AIG, the largest global insurance company, as well as credit-supporting companies went bankrupt with the entire banking industry needing a massive federal bailout by the U.S. Treasury under emergency powers granted by Congress. Consider the likelihood Congress could agree on granting the U.S. Treasury even a fraction of these kinds of expanded powers today. Add to that the Dodd-Frank legislation and too-big-to-fail regulations put into effect after 2008-2009, which will not allow similar kinds of future government bailouts. The big bet is that a global financial meltdown cannot happen again, right? Causation of financial crises vary. But the outcomes of them have striking similarities, and we all should be preparing for outcomes that are somewhat predictable. After all, our country's history includes almost 50 major recessions and financial panics since 1776, with some of them arguably worse than the Great Depression and worse than the 2008-2009 meltdown. These all-encompassing panics and meltdowns appear to come from out of the blue, catching most families off guard. For example, the official recession 10 or so years ago spanned only 18 months, from December of 2007 to June of 2009. But the home foreclosures, personal and company bankruptcies, and large job losses impacted many for years to come. Some impacts are still here over 10 years later, and some U.S. cities still have not recovered. So what are the lessons and what outcomes look to be repeating this time? The last crisis, like the next one we'll face, in my opinion, has credit and money creation at its core. And there's one more key ingredient we briefly mentioned that is pretty much ignored, the shadow banking system. In brief, this is a relatively new and rapidly growing global financial network made up of non-bank lenders, importantly, lenders in the United States and China. There are many examples. How about Quicken Loans? How about Rocket Mortgage? More generally, how about the venture capital funds, the hedge funds, and the private equity funds, maybe even pension funds lending to large commercial real estate projects? Pension funds in Canada and sovereign wealth funds in Asia are additional large participants. Why does this matter? Did you know that in the crisis, a foreclosure and personal bankruptcy driving factor was adjustable rate mortgages? How many know that their adjustable rates were likely determined in London via the London interbank interest rate? This rate has been pretty much replaced, but few would read the fine print, much less understand that large mortgage loans were made on the basis of pools of mortgages, that is thousands of mortgages in each pool, and these mortgage pools were collateral with global banks. Yes, the same 24 primary dealers are included with their subsidiaries, and they channeled money to this market. In brief, The shadow banking system has over $50 trillion in assets versus a total U.S. mortgage market size of less than $15 trillion in mortgages outstanding. This shadow system, which largely operates outside of many banking regulations, but includes banks as participants through joint ventures and global subsidiaries, is really important. By the way, this system has grown 75% in size since the 2008-2009 meltdown. The shadow banking system includes many of the same parent companies who control the trillions of dollars of bonds and stocks that trade every business day. Let's bring back our repo discussions in the past two podcasts for just a minute. Some of our more avid listeners may recall that I had mentioned the Fed intervening in the repo market is not only unusual, but could reflect one or more major banks in trouble. I had mentioned Italian banks that recently took actions to non-voluntarily convert some customer deposits into their own bank stock. This simply removes someone's money from their account and substitutes a share ownership certificate in a troubled banking company. How attractive does that sound? Over the past few months, you may have noticed that the dollar and gold have both gained substantially in price. Let's add one more puzzle part. Zero or negative interest rates impact almost $15 trillion of debt in some European countries. Maybe this is a coincidence, but HSBC Bank, one of the 24 primary dealers headquartered in London this week, announced layoffs of 35,000 jobs with a reduction in risk assets by about 35 to 40 percent in Europe and the United States. For more information, please use Google. The Federal Reserve continues its significant support for the repo system week to week, and now the global financial system is challenged to provide even more liquidity, particularly in China, which houses an estimated $8 trillion shadow banking system all of its own. My point is not so much that these ingredients are all new because they're not. The Fed is 107 years old, and lending outside the banking system has occurred for many years. My point is that the amounts of money outside the banking system and controlled by a very small number of market participants can by itself create market catastrophes that can be so large as to dwarf bailout monies, much less run into today's congressional deadlock, which is only getting worse in my view. By the way, the crises of yesteryear were pretty serious. So in some ways, although we cannot predict the dates of a future crisis, We should consider that each one can ruin many families and companies. For example, one of the worst financial crises occurred in 1907 and slashed almost 30% off the U.S. gross national product and dropped stock prices by 50%, and that occurred in a matter of weeks. Ironically, J.P. Morgan himself did the bank bailouts. Legislation was crafted by Congress after that crisis to avoid future banking system meltdowns, also a bit ironic these days. The 1907 crisis laid the foundation for creation of our Federal Reserve in 1913. So for the past 100-plus years, money creation and debt increases became the go-to band-aid acknowledging that many Federal Reserve mistakes prolonged the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s. Basically, the Fed was given monopoly power to create as much money as it decided, but the Fed was not set up as a government agency. Think of the Fed as a corporation owned by the largest US and selected European banks at the time. This is a unique model for the world, as the bank of japan, bank of england and the european central bank, bank of china and so forth do not have the powers granted to our federal reserve. Why is this important? Well, for one, the european banks cannot create the money and they don't have the flexibility of the federal reserve under article 123 from the lisbon treaty that explicitly prohibits the european central bank to finance public institutions. In other words, our federal reserve creates money that ultimately goes to buy federal debt. The European Central Bank by law cannot do that. It's actually easier for our Federal Reserve to buy the debt in Europe than for the European Central Bank to buy their own public debt. The bottom line is other countries' central banks cannot create unlimited amounts of their currencies and are much more limited in doing bailouts. Recall the repo crisis, HSBC and central bank investments in their own country's bonds. It's important to know the Federal Reserve has one tool for economic firefighting, and that tool is short-term liquidity. I'll repeat the words, short-term, which means daily, weekly, monthly borrowing rates. On a national basis, the Fed can create money, and encourage banks to loan multiples of their reserve balances, but the Fed cannot make the United States financially healthy by increasing government tax inflows to balance a budget. They also cannot control longer-term interest rates, and they cannot direct consumers and companies to borrow and invest more. Today, we have record low interest rates, which unfortunately supports more government borrowing as our industries in total are not borrowing to invest in new capacity. Actually, this is understandable as our real production after subtracting inflation is not growing and is likely contracting. However, today, unlike the 2008-2009 crisis, the precursors for a financial crisis are public sector debt which is federal, state, city, and also pension funds, because they're investors in this debt. With financial duct tape keeping their positive narratives going day-to-day during a major election year, let's focus on major issues that could quickly change our incomes and net worths. Optimistically, these issues can be contained by Federal Reserve actions this year, but we should consider that even in an election year, the tools may not be powerful enough to keep interest rates from dramatically rising and to continue to support an uptrend in the stock market. Here are some ingredients that can once again crash the stock and bond markets. Every institution that holds or has investments in government bonds can lose 20%, 30%, even more of their investment values when interest rates do snap back up. For those who bought 0% government bonds or even 1% interest rate bonds, they can lose these kind of substantial values when interest rates do ultimately go up to only 4% or 5%. As interest rates go up, your long-term bond prices go down, as the interest a bond investor receives is fixed in dollar amount at the time the bond is bought. This is tricky for some to understand, and again, I recommend to Google interest rates up, bond prices down, and you can receive a lot of explanations online. This is crucial to understand, as many who don't understand it think bonds are a totally safe, secure, and predictable investment. But higher market rates devalue the bond price, so selling it before maturity can result in a substantial loss. Even holding it all the way to maturity means taking an inflation risk. So, for example, $1,000 invested today could be worth far less in 20 or 30 years in purchasing power. Additionally, the stock markets are getting pumped up with all the U.S. and China liquidity additions. We're getting used to essentially free money and high government borrowing. It reminds me of the crisis of 10 years ago when a homeowner might learn the next mortgage payment can't be made, but today and tomorrow seem okay and actually pretty luxurious in this really expensive, non-affordable home. It simply doesn't go on forever and can be ignored at the risk of one's own financial health. You might ask, what's the next red flag or the redder flag? It's hard to imagine a worse time than now to face any kind of financial crisis. Brexit. European bank bail-ins. Slow or no growth in the European markets. Negative interest rates created to spur growth, but growth is not happening. And European central bank band-aids already applied with no significant positive effect. Let's move to Asia. Bank of Japan is failing to spur growth over the past 30 years of trying And they're now pumping their yen into the stock markets to keep asset values and retirement plans afloat. China. The Bank of China is creating new liquidity with huge public debts in their provinces and localities, facing imminent recession, if not worse, actually regardless of coronavirus. The U.S. Fed generated liquidity as a defensive move to keep financial gears from locking up and compounding this with an election year that has historically serious divisiveness. Whichever party wins, or prevails I should say, more government spending, more deficits, and more funding needs are ahead. A stock market behaving more like a junkie needing more and more liquidity injections to keep rising. There are so many red flags, it's hard to select just one or two. Consider the biggest red flag as the fact there are so many to choose from. It's impossible to predict which one is the most important, but I'm thinking everything we're witnessing still has to play out even more. I try to look at indications of either more or less Fed support needed to keep the financial system functioning because that is their top priority. They can grind their teeth as inflation increases and curse slower no growth and even higher unemployment, but they will keep the banks functioning with sufficient liquidity. The next year or two will impact families differently depending on how much they have in savings and how much debt is owed. Retirees will continue to bear the brunt of loss of purchasing power. Investors, as previously mentioned, are cautioned about holding long-term bonds and a non-diversified investment portfolio. Households should really do their own stress tests, assuming interest rates rise, bond prices drop, and the impact of a major stock market sell-off. We'll get through the next crisis as we always do, but the objective is to maintain or improve our family lifestyles, which is far more important than trying to guess when the next crisis will occur or when the stock market will peak.
0: Next time, we'll try to assess the global economic impact of China's attempts to shore up their economy. This is important as China is a major part of many supply chains and our long-term employment prospects. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director, Roger Tornadin, this podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast, or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.